Today's scripture is found in Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. And he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed on by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. Well, again, good morning. If you're new, I want to welcome you to the Parks Church. Uh, so glad that you are, are here with us. Um, typically what we do is we preach through books of the Bible. Um, this fall, we are making our way through um, a handful of parables, uh, these stories that Jesus taught, some of his most famous stories that he taught to uh, his different audiences. And this morning, as I've already mentioned, we come to prob- probably, I know Michael said last week it was debatable between uh, the prodigal son parable and this one. I think this one is the most famous parable in that uh, it's not that it's a competition between Michael and I ever. Um, but I, I just think that more people know and understand at a vague cultural level, especially here in America, this idea of a good Samaritan. We even have laws, all right? Good Samaritan laws. What is a good Samaritan? A good Samaritan is somebody who's kind to people or someone who goes out of their way to serve someone else. It's kind of these feel-good stories that we hear maybe on the news, right? They always end the news with a good Samaritan point, you know, like, because it's like, it's miserable, miserable, miserable. Let's talk about a good Samaritan, okay? Um, However, as I've mentioned in the last couple weeks, I believe in many ways we have domesticated um, the teachings of Jesus. And what I mean by that is we've made them into these simple, kind of cute uh, bedtime stories with these simple or cute conclusions. And I think that um, what Jesus is trying to do in the parables particularly is the furthest thing from that in the minds of his hearers. And, and the parables are meant to lift our imagination. His hearers, they were meant to kind of uh, poke at some of the idols and some of the preconceived ideas that they had about certain things. And, and even part of this series, as we go through this parable teaching, we've, we've uh, asked some of our local artists within this community to do different paintings or different art renderings um, as they sit with the parable and think through it. So we'll have things like this with Andrew Jones, who did this one, an abstract piece. Um, we had things like last week where it was very clear with the emotion 
in, in, in that. But um, it has been a beautiful thing for our arts community to participate with us and hope you've enjoyed that uh, as well. But that's, that's one of the points of what Jesus is doing. He's, he's meaning to uh, provoke thought, provoke the imagination, uh, to convict and confront his audience. And so this parable of the Good Samaritan is no different. We've made it into the cute bedtime story. Jesus didn't intend for his original hearers to see it as a cute bedtime story. And hopefully what I'll be able to do is unpack why that, that is the, the case. And so if you have your Bible, you're going to want to leave them open because I'm going to go through it pretty systematically uh, this morning. But hopefully one of the things is, is Vivian read the text you, you picked up on was that this parable is laced with questions. Questions at the beginning and questions at the end. And I'm going to revisit that at, at the very end. But the questions uh, come from the context that Jesus is telling this parable from. And it's a conversation with a lawyer. Okay? It's a conversation with a lawyer. Now, you have to understand that a lawyer in this day is not a lawyer like we understand now. Somebody who ar argues cases in front of a judge. A lawyer here is someone who is an expert in the Jewish law. An expert in the, the Torah. They were uh, very well versed in all of the, there were these different rabbis and these different schools of thought within the Jewish tradition, and they knew these different schools of thought. They knew these uh, rabbinical traditions that, that some of them held, and so they were uh, very smart. They, they understood things uh, very well as it related to the law, and, and so looking at this, this text at the very beginning, verse 25, and behold, a lawyer stood up to put him, that's Jesus, to the test. And I would guess that's what lawyers do in this time and age, right? They put, they put people to the test because they believe, hey, I know best. We, we, I'm an expert in this. So uh, constantly, the religious leaders were trying to test Jesus. And not only is this something about just the religious leaders as a whole, I think this gives us a picture into the interior life of this particular lawyer. He wanted to test Jesus. Why did they want to test Jesus so much? Well, they wanted to test Jesus because he was gaining in popularity. He was doing things that they had never seen before, definitely things they couldn't do. And so they were like, we really kind of need to like diffuse this guy a little bit. We need to kind of come rain on his parade, if you will. And so they were constantly testing him. And so this lawyer is, is no different. He's coming with a test to Jesus. And the test is found in the form of a question. Jesus, how do I inherit eternal life? Not a bad question. In fact, that's a great question, isn't it? Like, how do I receive eternal, uh, eternal life? Jesus, can you answer that question for me? The problem with testing Jesus is this. He's God. He never fails the test, right? Like, he's not going to fail by answering this guy's question. But Jesus, I love what he does in, in facing these tests. Oftentimes, how he responds to them is not with a direct answer. That's actually very, like 1% of the time does Jesus ever respond with a direct answer. He responds back with a question. Look at it in your text. He says to the lawyer, he says, well, what does the law say? Lawyer, you tell me. And I got to think that potentially this lawyer that he's talking with is kind of a big shot guy, you know? Kind of one of those guys when he stands up to talk, everybody's like, oh, he's like, yeah, it's him. Let's see what he has to say. And so Jesus goes, you seem to be the smartest guy in the room. Um, what is it? And so this guy, because he probably has that reputation, has no problem with giving an answer, right? Verse 27. And the lawyer answered and said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. That's how you inherit eternal life. So the lawyer just answered Jesus 
with the law. The Shema from Deuteronomy 6, and then also adding to it Leviticus 19, where it says that you should love your neighbor, right? Love your neighbor as yourself. And so the lawyer stands up to Jesus. He goes, all right, I asked you the question, but since you won't answer it, I'll answer it for you. Here's how you do it. You love the Lord God with your whole being perfectly, and you love your neighbor as yourself perfectly. That's how you inherit eternal life. And what does Jesus say next to his answer? And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you'll live. What? Love God perfectly and love your neighbor perfectly as yourself. That's the requirement. That's what the law says. You want eternal life? That's what it is. Go, go do it. Now, let's just take a time out right here. Um, if that's the requirement Love God perfectly with all that you are, never failing, and love your neighbor as yourself without ever failing. What is your response to that? Uh-oh, maybe. Like, that's how I get eternal life? And by the way, Jesus is not missing an opportunity to share the gospel here, by the way, which we'll get to, right? He's not, he's not going, the, the, the law is how it saves you. He's just holding up the law. He's holding up the thing this guy is an expert in and going, that's what it demands of you to get eternal life. Love God perfectly, and right? So we all go, uh-oh, why? Because we haven't done it. We can't do it. We fail every day, right? We failed in this miserably. So we have one of two options here. We either come before uh, Jesus and we go, oh, no, I can't do that. That's impossible. And if we recognize who Jesus is, what we would respond is go, have mercy on me, son of David, as some did. Or if we're a lawyer, we ask another question, Right? That's what happens in the text. And so this is what Jesus says, do it perfectly. Verse 29, again, back to a picture of, of this lawyer's interior life. But he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself. So it's like he knows. It's like he knows that the demand or the requirement of the law, he cannot fulfill, but he can't say it. And so now he is putting back on his lawyer hat to justify himself, said to Jesus, who is my neighbor? So yeah, 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 I know. Love God, love God, love God. with all this thing. And love your neighbors yourself. But Jesus, you tell me who my neighbor is. Now here's something that the lawyer understood. He understood that within the rabbinical circles, there were different views of the, and definitions of this word neighbor. Who neighbors actually were. There were some rabbis, there were some circles that interpreted Leviticus 19, where it says, Love your neighbor as yourself, where it says, You must love your neighbor as being the Israelites, the people of that nation. There were other rabbinical schools of thought that broadened that just a hair. But he is going, Jesus, what circle do you fall in? Jesus, what school of thought are, are, are you in? And listen, he was wanting to justify himself. Let's not forget that. What does it mean by him wanting to justify himself? It means that he wants to give himself a reason for why he is right in his own eyes, in his own behavior, and his own definition. He's wanting to justify himself by one-upping Jesus, discrediting him on a technicality or a loophole and something debated among the Jews. This is what I call the yeah, but section by the lawyer. Yeah, I, I know that's how you inherit eternal life. Yeah, but... Who's my neighbor? How do you define that? You see, the lawyer, no doubt, is justifying his neighbor as a person who looks like him, believes like him, votes like him, talks like him, 
the nation of Israel, right? It's my people. That's my neighbor. And before we start shaking our head at the lawyer, we do this all the time. Right? We try to relativize truth all the time, right? Hey, Jesus, your truth can be your truth and my truth can be my truth, right? My neighbor can be my neighbor and your neighbor is your neighbor, right? We can all have this and this can all be truth. Jesus, surely you're not saying to love everyone in the world. Surely you're not saying that, that everyone is my neighbor. Jesus, I need you to narrow it down a little bit for me. Give me the answer. Really what he's looking for is personal justification, for an excuse to ignore Jesus' explicit teaching. The scriptures, the Old Testament's clear teaching. Again, you want to do a little exercise to see if we do this? Personal excuses, technicalities, believing we're the exception to the rule. Ephesians 5.4. I'm only going to stand the New Testament for this one, by the way. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place talking to you as a believer. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. It's talking about your mouth. Remind them, this is Titus 3, 1 through 2. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Loophole, I do it online. No, I, I talk against people, not to their face, but with the keyboard. Technicality. Or how about Ephesians 5.18, where it says, don't be drunk with wine. You're like, how about scotch? It's more classy, right? We look for these loopholes. We look for these technicalities to disobey the clear, explicit teaching and commands of Scripture all the time. And the lawyer's no different here. Who's my neighbor? Who's my neighbor? And Jesus, he's going to tell him a story, a parable, to answer that question. And the parable starts in verse 30. And Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and de departed, leaving him half dead. And so to Jesus' original audience, that scene probably wasn't surprising. This road from Jericho down to Jerusalem was known, it had, a, it had a name, it was called the Bloody Way because it was so dangerous. There were so many robbers and, and thugs on the side of these streets. Um, and by streets, this is what I mean, give me the picture of, of the way. Those are the streets. And those are the nice ones in the 17 mile journey, okay? I was there uh, in, in this area a year ago and that picture doesn't do it justice at all because these steep, steep, uh, steep cliffs and these, these fall-offs are, are with rocks and so you can't have your footing. So if, if it's not death from another person, it could be death just in your walking, right? And so it's called the bloody way. And, and so hearing that a man was beaten and left for half dead on that road wouldn't have been surprising to his audience. And so probably the lawyer and anybody listening to this is going, okay, what's, how's this story going to get to the end? answer of the question. And this is where Jesus enters in with the scene with this man at the side of the road. The first person to show up is who? You know the story. Come on. It's a priest, right? It's a religious leader. Surely this is, this is the paid professional to be nice, okay? Right? To be kind. And in fact, in that day, the priests were actually, we'll just call them, they were the chief health officials of the day as well. 
So if anybody had the power and the ability to help this person who needed medical attention, it's the priest. But what does Jesus say? The priest stepped out wide and kept going. We know the story. And then who shows up next? The Levite. Who, who, who were the Levites? The Levites um, were those dedicated to the service of the temple, the service of the priest. So the number one in command failed, the priest, right? Now you got the number two in command, the Levite. It's going the same direction. Now here's what's interesting about the Levite. They were given the task, particularly, of giving alms to the poor. So you had the chief health official and the person who's in charge of the money to help the poor respond how? Sidestepping and continuing on their journey. Now, I think there are two primary excuses that these men give or have or would be evident to the original audience that I want to make illuminated here. The first, and neither one of these excuses are valid, by the way. The first is the personal excuse. These two, the Levite and the priest, they have to believe if I stop, I might end up like that guy. That these thugs and these, these guys who did the same thing, these robbers, might do the same thing to me if I stop down and care for this man. If it happened to him, it can happen to me. And so I'm going to just kind of keep on walking. That's the personal excuse. The second, and I think more indicting, is this, the religious excuse. You see, they're headed to do God's work. The priest and the Levite. We're headed to do, to attend to what God has called us to attend to. So get this, in the name of their religious duty, Jesus presents the priest and the Levite as stepping over someone in pain. Let me say this another way that might hit home for us here in 2023. That where I'm going is more important than where I am. How often do we fall prey to that excuse that we miss what God is doing in the present, in the moment, what he's asking us to do right now because of where I'm headed or where I think I'm headed is more important than the present. Where I'm headed is more important than where I am. How many of you have ever heard that Latin phrase, uh, carpe diem? Carpe diem, no? It's a Latin phrase, carpe diem. It means seize the day, right? And we're kind of filled with that, like that mentality, like you, you go seize the day, you grab the day by the horns or whatever the other sayings are that I don't know, right? Like you make it happen. Nothing can stop us. Like we, we go. What happens when God wants to stop us? What happens when our seizing the day mentality makes us miss the present reality of how God wants us to be obedient right in the moment? So let me suggest to you a different way that a Christian views the day. We don't seize the day, gotta make it happen. We do what? We receive the day. We receive the day for what it is, a gift by God for us to respond to what he has for us right in the moment. So get this, these two in their religious activities step over what God had for them in the moment on their way to do church things. How many of us, myself included, in the pace of our life, miss the moments where God is trying to slow us down and say, pay attention to the person that's before you? And that might even be your family. Like, are we known as a people who are, who are consumed with self-preservation in performing religious duties? Or are we known as a community of people who love others more than we love ourselves? Which one is the way of Jesus? 
which is the one Jesus is highlighting right now? We're not even done with the parable yet. And the point's becoming clearer. You see, the priest and the Levite, they were guilty of oppressing this man. Listen, when we hurry, when we go past, when we miss these moments that God has for us, we're oppressing someone or something, and it might even be ourselves, right? But let me tell you, oppression has its source in our lives in two primary ways. The first is our self-centeredness, right? And what I mean by self-centeredness is, is us constantly always looking out for me because no one else will. I'm number one, right? I've got to get mine. It doesn't matter what happens to anyone outside of me. Listen, that is an oppressive mentality, not the way of Jesus. Let me tell you also, though, there's the way of pride. Self-centeredness and pride are the two primary sources of oppression. Pride does this. It looks itself and says, I've worked harder than you, and I've got what I deserve because I've worked hard. And you can get what I have too if you work harder than I will, but you'll never do that, right? But don't ask me for help. If you do ask me for help and I help you, I'm going to take the credit anyway, right? Those are the two primary sources of oppression. Now, just a side note here. We don't know by the text, but we have to believe that this man who is, who is laying there in Jesus' parable is of Jewish descent. So this man who is Jewish, these two Jewish, this priest and this Levite, pass him. So by proximity, religion, and ethnicity, who are those guys' neighbor? That guy, right? Like, they're his neighbor. And at this point, okay, his audience, right, they, they, they've kind of seen this, like, atrocity. They, they feel it, like you feel it, right? That is so, it's so wrong. It's, it, it's wrong. Why is that guy there? Why have the two people who have, should have stopped not stopped? What his original audience would have thought at this moment is that, oh, we know who the hero's going to be. We know who the third person is going to be. It's just going to be a regular lay person, like a Jewish person just kind of on a journey, not a priest, not a Levite. It's just going to be a regular Jewish person going down, and they're going to be the ones to go, see, priest, Levite, see, even a lay person gets this. And then Jesus does something crazy. Jesus uses someone who to his hearers would have been instinctively a villain. And he says, that Samaritan stops. The Samaritans were half Jews. There's a, long, a lot I could go into this, but they believed, the Samaritans believed themselves to be the keepers of the tradition or of the law. Their name, Samaritan, actually comes from the phrase keeper of the law, which includes the word Shema. The Shema is what the lawyer quoted. How do I inherit eternal life? Deuteronomy 6 is the Shema. And we have a Samaritan, the keeper of the law. This was an unthinkable, positive example that Jesus just gives. A Samaritan, by some Jews, didn't even regard them as human. A good Samaritan? That's an oxymoron. But this is who Jesus uses as the law keeper to illustrate where they fall short, where this lawyer falls short in doing the law and demonstrating God's heart. What Jesus is saying is scandalous here, that the Samaritan is closer to God's heart than the guy who has all the right answers at the beginning of this parable. Think about that. Think about the tragedy. Think about the, 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 the crowd hearing that going, what? Like he's, he's demonstrating God more than this lawyer who knows it all? And Jesus is going, yes. 
and he describes how the Samaritan, oh, by the way, what's the difference between the law knower and the law keeper? It's in verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, here's the difference, the end of verse 33, he had compassion on him. The priest and the Levite, they know the law, the law of God, way better than the Samaritan. But the Samaritan looks and acts and responds as if he knows it way more than the other two. How do you get that? He had compassion. That word compassion in the Greek is something that's felt in this innermost guts that this, this wasn't just kind of like, oh, I feel sorry for the guy. But no, this guy, this Samaritan has deep compassion on this man. So much so that I, I want to submit to you, I think he risks every facet of his being for this man. Go with me on how I get that, okay? It says that he, the Samaritan, went to him, bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. And again, remember, this is a fictitious story. This is a parable being taught by Jesus, but you have to hear it as the people so engaged on this parable, they're going, he did what? He took out his bandages his oil, his wine. Remember, this Samaritan was on a journey too, so he just risked being able to go forward in his journey by spending it all or most of it on this man, his oil and his wine. So in the present, this Samaritan is risking everything. And I've, I've missed this point in the parable in years past, but it hit me this week that, the, that he didn't just give things generously like monetarily. He also risked his own life. When it says that he put him on his animal, that means on the bloody way, he's literally putting this half-dead man on his security and walking beside it. Who does that make vulnerable? Himself. And that's just one instance. You want to know where else he's vulnerable personally? Is when he checks him into the inn. Right? Imagine the Jews hear that a Samaritan is staying the night in this inn. Let's go run him out of town. Let's go rally the troops and, and, and be, but he is willing to give financially. He's willing to give physically to this man. And hear me, not just in the present, but also in the future. He pays for this. And this lodging amount is probably anywhere from three weeks to, could be up to two months. We don't know the price of the inn, right? But it could be, it's a pretty long amount of time that he pays ahead of time. But notice he looks at the innkeeper in Jesus' story. And he also says, listen, if this guy stays longer, put it on my tab and I'll come back and pay you. So it's also future risk, right? He's putting himself in this innkeeper's hand because what if the innkeeper like shoes this half dead guy out in three weeks and then tells the guy when he comes back, oh yeah, he was here for about six months. You see the risk? You see how he's putting himself out? This is the compassion that drives him and that is leading him to love his neighbor. Listen, this is incredible compassion matched with insane generosity. And again, I think at this moment, Jesus' audience and the lawyer, their jaws are on the floor. Like, a, you, you're gonna use a Samaritan to paint this picture? And Jesus ends this parable with a question. The story begins and ends with a question. But more than that, hear me, the story begins and ends with a test. Remember the lawyer, what's he doing? He's trying to test Jesus. 
And what I'm convinced the lawyer is trying to do is test Jesus's knowledge. And Jesus here has a question to test the lawyer. But Jesus is not testing the lawyer's heart. He's not testing the lawyer's knowledge. He's testing the lawyer's heart. Where his convictions are. Where is his action going to lie? Is it with just in head knowledge or is it going to permeate to his heart? You see, Jesus' question about the neighbor doesn't center on someone outside of the lawyer. Jesus' question about the neighbor centers on the lawyer. Look at it in the text. Jesus in verse 36 says this, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Do you notice the question difference there? The lawyer said, who's my neighbor? Tell me who they are outside of me. And Jesus looks at him and says, who's the good neighbor? You see, for Jesus, a neighbor is someone who reflects the heart and love of God to those around them. It's not someone outside of you. It's you. Do you reflect the heart and love of God to those around you? And in this parable, it's a Samaritan. You see, the lawyer can't even bring himself to say the word in verse 37. Listen, I can ask any one of these children on the front row, who's the good neighbor in this parable? And they're going to go, the guy who stopped. The Samaritan, right? That one. But the lawyer, he gets the answer right too. But he can't even say the word Samaritan. Look at it, verse 37. And he said to Jesus, the one who showed mercy on him. I'm not even going to say Samaritan. Why? Well, maybe, just maybe in this parable, Jesus is poking at the one thing he knew this lawyer would never lay down. His prejudice. His hatred of another people group. The one hurdle this guy just couldn't get over. Never will I say that. Never will I think that they're doing something more merciful than me. Think about another story where Jesus is asked the same question, how do I inherit eternal life with a man called the rich young ruler? And what does Jesus laser in with him? He goes, you want to inherit eternal life? He says, sell everything, leave everything you have and follow me. And in that story, this is a true story, we know the outcome. It says that the rich young ruler leaves with all his stuff but with an empty heart sad from Jesus. You see, Jesus has a way of getting straight to the heart of his hearers. And let me tell you, Jesus is doing that same thing this morning for you and me as a hearer. The Samaritan reflected the love and mercy of God. I mean, I can hear, I can hear what the lawyer is thinking, but the Samaritan's theology is all jacked up. And he's not wrong. <laughs> it is. But Jesus is going, they're the one in this parable displaying God's heart and mercy. And I have a question for us. Are we actually humble enough to receive correction from all kinds of people? I know I don't, and many times. 
You see, I have a fear for us here in the Bible Belt in McKinney, Texas in 2023. And the fear is this. And I wouldn't say this in different contexts. That's why the local church is so beautiful because we can speak to our context, us. I have a fear that many of us and maybe most of us, we know what God desires. Like the lawyer, we know God's word. We may maybe bring up some technicalities on it. But yet, we're busy looking for those technicalities and justifications why not to follow it, except for the stuff we're comfortable with. We don't act on the full counsel of God's word. We don't actually understand what God demands and requires of us. We have an incredible head knowledge, but it's disconnected from our hearts and from our faith. To quote the great theologian James, I don't know James' last name, but he has a a book in our Bible, right? Chapter 2. A passage you're familiar with, verses 14 through 17. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one, and one of you says, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? In verse 17, the one we all know, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is, say it, dead, not alive, not working, not true saving faith. So hear me, we can believe wrongly like the lawyer that our faith simply entails knowing a bunch of intellectual facts that we intellectually affirm, but yet only live out the ones that we are comfortable with and that are palatable for us in our season of life. Now hear me, am I saying that we are saved? Do I think this parable is Jesus teaching that we are saved by our works, that we're justified by our works? No, I think Jesus is actually highlighting that it is impossible to good work your way into a relationship with God. I think he's actually holding up the law, like James says, as a mirror and go, listen, that's the standard, that's the requirement to which we all just went, hey, listen, we believe Romans 3, right? None of us is righteous. We've all failed. So we throw ourselves at the mercy and grace of Jesus and he transforms our life. But let me tell you, when he transforms our life, he stands us up to be a beacon, an embodied hope of his grace and mercy, to live out our life of faith with these works. That's why James would stand in confidence in James chapter two and say, listen, faith without works is dead. If your faith is not matched with works, it means you don't actually understand the grace that you proclaim to save you. You see, it's that grace and mercy of Christ that compels us out in full compassion to live lives that are utterly present, real, and embodied. Praise God that Jesus didn't just step over us in our death of sin, right? But instead, what does the scripture tell us about Jesus? He became sin on our behalf. He became sin for us. Why? Because do we do all this because we're trying to earn our way into a relationship with God? No way. We could never do that. We do all of these things because we have a relationship with the living God in Jesus Christ. And Tim Keller, he says this. He says, we must see this entire context of the parable of the Good Samaritan, or we can fall easily into the trap of moralism. Jesus is not telling us that we can be saved by imitating the Good Samaritan, even though he is clearly charging us to follow his pattern. Rather, get this, rather Jesus is seeking to humble us with the love God requires so we will be willing to receive the love that God offers. You hear that? 
He is bringing us to a place to go, this is the kind of love that God requires, our whole being, our whole love for everyone, God included, and those around us. God, I have failed. Here's the offer. And here's actually where the parable ends. When the lawyer answers Jesus, Jesus gives him what I think is the ultimate invitation. Look at the end of verse 37. And Jesus said to him, look at it in your Bible. Lawyer, you go and do likewise. You identified the right guy. You saw him. You know what mercy looks like. You go and do likewise. So what does the lawyer do? I don't know. It doesn't tell us, does it? And I think like last week, it's purposefully open-ended. Like we want the answer, right? We want to be like, oh, that foolish lawyer. We want to be like, yay, the lawyer, right? But really, Jesus is asking the question because the lawyer had to make a decision, but we have to make a decision. You go and do likewise. Listen, do you see the love that God requires? But do you simultaneously see the love that God offers in Christ Jesus this morning? And if you'll receive that love, it's that love that then compels us out. If you have received the love of Christ, let me tell you, that love compels you and I out. And that's when we'll understand what it means to be a good neighbor. Let me pray for us. Host, you can get ready for us to receive communion. Father, I pray that you would help us in these moments of introspection where your Holy Spirit is moving on our hearts to call out those specific places, those idols, those hurdles, those prejudices in each of our lives that we hold on to. Some of us justifying them, <laughs> some of the excuses we're wanting to hold on to because they create a security and a comfort that we're not willing to hand over. Father, I pray that, that we would get a hold, God, of the love that you offer to us in Jesus. That as Romans 8 says, what the law could not fulfill, Christ Jesus fulfilled in his flesh. What the law demanded, perfection, Jesus fulfilled for us. And so, Lord, as we trust him, Lord, I pray simultaneously we would understand how he has called us to live the neighbor he has called us to be with eyes wide open to those hurting, with hands ready to help, feet swift to run into those places, hearts longing to feel compassion. God, I pray that you would, God, you would rid us from unneeded rigidity, for us wanting to always pick apart certain things and, and be people full of critique and criticism. Oh God, I pray that we would be a people so transformed by the grace and mercy of Jesus that we would just, we would, we would live lives of complete abandon to others. And God, we even know and acknowledge right now we will be taken advantage of. We will lose. But Lord, we serve a Savior who laid down his life, who lost his life for us, who was beaten and betrayed. And so, Lord, I pray that we would not think we would live lives any differently than the one we worship this morning. So, Lord, as we approach these tables, Holy Spirit, do what only you can do in these moments. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Host, you can lead us.